number of years ago, I was leading worship on a Sunday morning at my last church, and uh, the sanctuary was quite different than this one. It was, it was wider than it was long, and so I was able to kind of stand down by the, the center, uh, by the altar. It's a little tougher here because the further you get, the harder it is when you're upstairs to, to see, but I, I would preach down here, and I was in the middle of the sermon, and I can't tell you what the scripture was. I can't tell you what I was preaching about. But I can tell you that the one thing I remember was about halfway through the sermon, down the center aisle came a toddler crawling to me. And I, of course, was trying to be in the moment, trying to preach the sermon I had prepared, but all I could think about was this kid. Whose kid is this? I mean, there's just this crawling down the center aisle. And so while I'm preaching, I'm looking around for where's this parent? And there's this, this mother in the very, very back pew, and she, she has twins, one of whom is on her lap, kind of yelling and being a little disruptive, and the other one is making his way down the center aisle, and, and no one did anything, so I just kept preaching, and that kid got closer and closer and closer and until he grabbed my leg and pulled himself up, and I just kept preaching, so I reached down, and I grabbed him, and I put him on my hip, and he stared at me, and I just kept going. Well, the poor woman sitting in the back is so distracted by her other twin is so worried about what's going on, how left, she doesn't even realize, number one, the other one's missing, let alone that the child is with me. And so I'm, I'm continuing to preach, the kid is just this precious angel, this precious little lamb, just not doing a thing, just, just totally absorbing everything. And finally the woman gets the, the first child settled, and then she looks for the other one, and there's no kid. And in real time, I see her eyes get three sizes too large for her body because she, she realizes her child is missing. But of course, she doesn't think I have the kid, so she starts looking under the pew. And I can see her back there. And, and, and she starts like motioning for people, and they all point up to me. And I'm sitting there, and I continue to preach, and she looks at me, and, and she goes, should I come get him? I said, I think he's having a good time. I'll bring him when I'm done. So I had this kid in my arms for the whole service, the whole sermon. And after the service ended, and you know everyone was kind of joking about this little miracle that they had witnessed on a Sunday morning, the, the mother came up to me, and she, of course, profusely apologized. And, and then she said, you know, I don't know if I've ever felt more welcomed in a church. I said, oh, is that because I, I so wonderfully took care of your child in the middle of worship? Is it because of that great sermon I preached? And she said, no, I mean, that was all fine. She said, no one here judged me. I'm a single mom trying to raise twins by myself. And I came to church on Sunday morning hoping to hear some good news. And no one judged me. They just let me be me. Our scripture passage today comes from the gospel according to Mark. Chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Hear now God's word. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching, and he was saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. And he was in the house, and he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down. He called the twelve, and he said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and a servant of all. And then he took a little child 
put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The disciples don't get it. Poor, poor disciples. They just don't get it. And they're too afraid to ask Jesus to elaborate on his whole scheme. But they have been talking about something, because by the time they get to Capernaum, Jesus says to them, So what were you all arguing about? And they say nothing, because they were afraid. Jesus is on the way to the end, to the cross, when the disciples, all they can argue it about is, who's going to get a cabinet position in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest? Now, these disciples, they've witnessed all the healings, they've heard all the preachings, and they're still clueless. So Jesus drops it on like this. He says, pay attention. If you want to be first, you have to be last. And then scripture says he grabs a kid. Where'd the kid come from? I don't know, but he grabs a kid and he says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes God. In this strange new world made possible by God in Christ, the master is actually the one who serves. The greatest is the least, the first is the last. Yet Luke and Matthew have this same story in their Gospels, the dispute about greatness. They too, they record Jesus claiming that whoever wants to be first must be last, but then they add another line. They said, Jesus said that the greatest among you shall become like the youngest. One cannot enter the kingdom unless they do so as a child. So Jesus seems to say, we've got to welcome one another like children, and we've got to start acting like children. Now that sounds all good and fine. I mean, we love kids, but it makes me wonder if Jesus actually spent any time around kids. I mean, this is not very good advice, Lord. Can you imagine what would happen if all of us respectable adults start behaving like children? Or worse, what would happen if we let kids be in charge of this thing we call church? You know, my very first week here, I gathered with the youth down in our gathering area, and I asked each of them, I said, if you could change one thing, just one thing about the church, what would you change? One of them made a very strong case for installing a hot tub outside of our gathering area. <laughs> Another one said that he would like it if we had one of those 7-Eleven hot dog roasters, so you can always have a warm hot dog whenever you want. Another one argued that we should renovate our back set of stairs here at the back of the sanctuary because she said, if you ever need to use the bathroom during the service, the stairs are so creaky, everyone knows what you're going to go do. <laughs> I mean, they just kept going. Get this one. Get this. One of them said that they would make us actually love each other. That if they could change one thing about the church, they'd make us actually love each other. Kids, they don't know what they're talking about. We can't trust them with the church. You know, soon enough, we'll be relaxing in hot tubs and eating hot dogs and maybe actually loving each other. If you want to be first, you got to be last. 
which in a sense means this whole apparatus called church, it's caught up in this confounding community in which people with no qualifications are the ones who are supposed to be in charge. And those with all the power and the prestige, they have to take a back seat to the kingdom. Did you know that the Methodist church grew in size every single year until they required uh, pastors to start having master's degrees? It's odd that the Methodist church grew every year until they said, ah, you know what we need? We need better educated preachers. You start letting people with the right pedigree up into the pulpit, and it rubs against the way the kingdom works. And Jesus is forever going on, dropping these bombs of truth on the disciples without giving them much of an opportunity to sit or even wrestle with this strange new world. And when Jesus calls the disciples, he doesn't ask for their resumes. He doesn't call up all of their references. He says, follow me. And then later he says, you know what you need to do? Start acting like children. You know, those same youth, that first week when I gathered with them, I shared with them one of my favorite things in the world. I said, you know, Jesus says that unless you act like a child, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. So this is your one time to get out of jail free with your parents. The next time your parent says to you, would you stop acting like a child? You say to them, and it only works once, well, mom, Jesus says if you want to go to heaven, you have to act like a child. Well, just about every youth in our church has already used it. They said it didn't go over very well with their parents. <laughs> I mean, who can know the mind of God? God is God, and we are not. The finite can never really comprehend the infinite, but there is something to this bizarre proclamation, something that, that we kind of know rings true. When I was in the third grade, I was eight years old, I was marched up to the front of church on a Sunday morning, and some well-meaning Sunday school teacher handed me this very Bible. It says, this Bible is presented to Taylor Burton's by Aldersgate United Methodist Church, September 15th, 1996. This is something we do. We give Bibles to third graders as if to say, good luck, you have everything you need. Have you all ever read this before? There is some, there is some stuff in here that is beyond PG-13, beyond the rating R. <laughs> Judges 4.21, a woman rams a tent peg through the skull of a foreign general. Ruth 3.4, a late-night premarital, I want to underline that premarital rendezvous in the evening results in the eventual birth of King David. And I'm not even going to mention it because it's kind of too unsightly to. But if you ever want, read Ezekiel 23 sometime. And then never, ever ask me to preach on it, okay? <laughs> Yet we give these books to kids and say, okay, good. don't do it, Steph. I'm in the middle of preaching. You check after the sermon. I got, I got the best vantage point, vantage point in, the, in the whole church. I can see what you all are doing. But see, this is actually why the call to behave like children, it stands as like a beacon of wonder and joy in church because children, children, they reject this rugged individualism that our culture is so obsessed with. Children, unlike adults, they cannot survive on their own. They know that they can only make it in this world because of other people. You know, children, they take their Bibles, and they read the stories, and then they come to me and say, what's the deal? But adults, we don't feel the need to stand under the authority of a church that tells us who we are and what we're supposed to do. Adults, we are consumed by the idea that we have to think for ourselves. 
So much so that we never even dare to think like children about what it means to think together. And the witness of the church, straight from the lips of the Lord, is that we cannot know who we are until God tells us who we are. And it's only then that we can live into a reality of a community with people who persist on telling us the truth again and again and again. The world, the world will forever try to label us based on external or even internal circumstances. You're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're fat, you're old, you're stupid, on and on and on. But God in Christ, through the church, tells us again and again that we're baptized that we are precious lambs of Jesus Christ, that we are not defined by what we've done or what we've left undone. We are not labeled by what we do or what we wear. We are only who God tells us we are. I don't really know when it happens or even how it happens, but at some point, adults, we foolishly believe we have nothing left to learn. But children, thankfully, remind us that there is no limit to the knowledge and wisdom that comes from God. Because oddly enough, we never actually really think for ourselves. No matter how much we believe we do, all of us are captive to the thoughts and the words and the instructions of other people. We tell children to think for themselves. We even think that we think for ourselves, but we don't. Somewhere along the line, we start thinking like somebody else. The entire industries exist for the sole purpose of trying to tell you who you are, even though you think for yourself this never-ending push for individualism, for solitary adult-like behavior, it presents a version of the world as if people are capable of being alone, which forgets that our entire lives, our ability to think is only because of other people. Independence is this carrot on a string that dangles in front of our faces, but in the kingdom of God, dependence is the name of the game. Because in the end, our insatiable desire for autonomy, for individualism, it only results in us becoming more and more lonely without having any story in the world to make sense of who we are or what we've done or what's happened to us. The gospel calls us to a life of dependence in which our hopes and our dreams, they come not from us, but from God. Because God sees even bigger things than we can. In other words, the church, the church is an antidote to the loneliness of the world. There should be no such thing as a lonely person in church. And how many of us never feel lonely? I mean, there's these crazy studies that social media, for all of its great gifts of bringing us together, it's actually driven us further apart. That people regularly admit to feeling more lonely now than they ever have in their lives. But it's here. In church, among the baptized, we learn that we're not alone, that we are incorporated into something that is not of this world. And it's not that we have an antidote. The church is the antidote. The antidote is called Jesus. What we do, worship and prayer and sacrament and mission, it's, it's all of a piece in which God's story is revealed to us. We're reminded that we're dependent on each other. In the community of faith, we live out the story that's revealed to us in Scripture, and it becomes training ground for those of us who call ourselves Christians. It's because we're forced to live together by being together. We cultivate habits necessary for understanding how we can be in the world. 
means being with people who aren't like us. Now, I love the church for a lot of reasons, but one of the things I love most about the church is it is the last vestige of a place where we willfully gather with people who are not like us. I mean, you do that at Kroger, too, but you don't talk to the people in Kroger most of the time. But in church, we come to be with people who aren't like us. The only reason we find ourselves in a place like this is because Jesus has called us his friends. So if we welcome those like children, it implies a willingness to welcome ideas from the very kinds of people and the kinds of places that we would never dare imagine. It means being open to a future that we can scarcely imagine. It means getting out of the way of the Spirit and letting it rip. If you ain't first, you're last. That's what the world tells us. If you ain't first, you're last. From the time we're young adults until the day we die, it's this breakneck competition for firstness and greatness and foundness. But in the kingdom of God, the Lord does his best work, frankly, his only work, with the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. People like you and me. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.